Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. Well, good morning. Today we are talking about truth. On the count of three, say truth. One, two, three. Thank you. You're already helping me preach the message today. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to join me in opening them to John chapter 14. In just a bit, we're going to be jumping into this incredible passage of Scripture. And I can't wait to see what it says with each other. Alive. Um, today, I'm so excited to talk about this. It's been really fun going through what it means to have core values as a church. We talked a couple weeks ago that one of our core values is action. We also believe in restoration, and then part of our view of restoration, we've started a blog called someonehearsyou.com, where we actually talk to people in the houseless community in downtown Portland and offer them the opportunity to share their story, and uh, we actually had a friend join us today that we got to interview. I've only met him online by reading his interview, and he joined us today. I don't want to point him out to embarrass him, but go check it out. Read the stories. It's an awesome, awesome way to connect with people. Um, Also, I had the opportunity in our church lobby to buy Street Roots, which is is an awesome publication that lots of people sell that helps them uh, with some income. And it's also another way to hear some amazing stories about what's going on in our city. So if you ever get the chance to buy a Street Roots, buy one. Today we're talking about truth. On the count of three, say truth. One, two, three. You guys are telling the truth, I'm telling you. Uh, have you ever met those people who love truth a little too much? Um, there's that well, actually guy that you can never tell a story around. No matter what you say, it's, well... Actually, um, nobody loves the well actually guy. Um, My dad was one of those people who loved truth a little too much. Um, He considered our childhood to be one long episode of law and and order. He was the investigator, the judge, and the jury. And he just could not wait for us to do something wrong so he could bust us. Um, And the problem is, is like we were pretty good kids. Like everything that we did was just nonsense. Um, But he loved to like bust in my room after 10 p.m., lights out, bedtime, and feel my TV screen to realize I had just turned it off. And he's like, I can tell you were watching TV until I came in the room. I'm like, you cracked the case, Sherlock. Um, We had this rule. It was a pretty good rule. We were not supposed to talk on the phone when we drove. Pretty good rule, right? Um, And I had just turned 16, and the rule was if I catch you talking on the phone while you're driving, then I'm going to take your car away for a month. And I'm like, that's impossible, because if I'm driving away from you, you can't see me. So one day, I'm driving on the phone, talking on my Nokia cellular device, if you remember that piece of technology. Revival over Nokia today. Um, So I was driving down the road on the phone, and who starts passing me from the opposite direction? It's my dad. And my eyes catch his eyes. And it was like time stopped. Like I could see him giving me this look like, oh, I knew I was going to catch you. And he's looking at me like, you're so busted. I'm taking that car away from you. And I'm like, pay attention to the road, dad. You're going to die too far. There was another time my dad wanted to crack a new case. And the case was called Aaron is late to breakfast every morning. 
very serious things we're dealing with in our house. Um, so my parents were like, Aaron, you're late for breakfast every day. And I was like, Mom and Dad, you just don't understand. Like, I am waking up when you guys tell me to wake up, because my mom would call me every morning to wake me up, because I was a grown man, and I needed my mother to call me. And so I was like, I'm getting up every day when she calls me. It just takes me a long time to get ready. And they were like, mm-hmm, sure. And I was like, mm-hmm, sure, because I go back to sleep when you call me. So one morning, my mom calls, and I just, like, bust out of the bed. And I'm like, ha-ha, take that, mom. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice behind me say, good morning, Aaron. And I look, and it was my dad. And I was like, ah, sitting in the dark while I'm sleeping too far, dad, too far. But I learned a powerful lesson that day that we are going to see today. That when you're on the wrong side of the truth, you're in trouble. But when you're on the right side of truth, the truth will set you free. I have a question that is so important for us all to ask. What is your relationship to the truth? What is your relationship to the truth? Some of us have this feeling the minute I said that because maybe there's a secret that we don't want revealed about our lives I know that I've sat in sermons like this when I'm thinking about the parking ticket in my glove compartment that I hope no one finds out about until I can pay it. But sometimes our secrets are a lot heavier than that. Sometimes the secrets that we don't want to be exposed are the ones that are keeping us up at night or the ones that keep us flinching when we go forward in new relationships. They're the secrets that we hope no one ever finds out about. And whether we like it or not, it complicates our relationship to the truth. Today I believe this, that your view of the truth determines the decisions that you will make. And the decisions that you make will determine your destiny. And if that's true, then nothing could be more important to your future than your relationship to the truth. We live in a city that questions the very nature of truth itself. We ask the question, does truth even exist? Here's the reality, we won't be asking that question forever. I believe that our view of the truth determines the decisions you make, and the decisions you make will determine your destiny. And here's the truth about our destiny. One day we will all face our destiny. Life is beautiful. Life is complicated. Life can be painful. But life, 100% of the time, is finite. It will end. There will be a day when we are no longer here. And that's the truth. And that is an idea that we should not be afraid to talk about. What happens next? That's a question we should not be afraid to ask. And if we are an open-minded, thoughtful people, it's a question we should do more than ask. It's a question we should explore. In the first century, there was a group of people dealing with this very question. One of these men was about to make the boldest claim about truth in the history of all humanity. And in this moment, he said his view of the truth not only affects his destiny, but this man claimed that his view of truth affects your destiny as well. It was a shocking claim made by a man, and this man's name is Jesus. We're in the middle of doing our summer program called the Portland Jesus Project, which has been a whole lot of fun. And what we do is we just go around and give people the opportunity to talk about what they believe. We do these spiritual surveys, and one of the surveys we ask people, because we want to know the heart of our city. Like, what is the context we're speaking into? And we ask this question, what do you believe about Jesus? And 96% of people say, Jesus is a pretty good guy. 
Only 4% of people don't even believe in Jesus. 96% of our city, the least religious city in America, Time Magazine tells us, says that Jesus is a good guy. The only problem is Jesus never claimed merely to be good. Jesus exclusively claimed to be God. It's shocking. Jesus would say there are too many people who only like me. So there's another set of questions that we'll ask today. Do you believe Jesus and what he's about to say? But it goes further than that. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Let me set the scene for the passage we're about to read because the Bible happened to real people just like me and you a long time ago, but it was still real people. This scene was unfolding in a very particular room. It was an upper room, a private space overlooking a busy city, not unlike the space we're in right now. It was late in the evening, and Jesus was sitting with some of his very closest friends. These are people that had seen Jesus do amazing things. They were out one day ministering, teaching the gospel, healing the sick, when a man by the name of Jairus sent word to Jesus with a very urgent message. He said, Jesus, my daughter is sick. I have a four-year-old daughter. I would do anything in the world for her. If she was sick, I would do anything to get her medicine. Uh, If she's running out into traffic, which we does on a regular basis, I would scream. And if I needed to step in front of a moving vehicle for her, I wouldn't hesitate. So I understand a dad named Jairus who would do anything at all, even go to a person named Jesus to ask for help. And he sends word to Jesus. The only problem is by the time Jesus got the message from the world standard, it was too late. His daughter had passed away. I don't know if you've ever sat by the bedside of a person who had just slipped into eternity, but it's a grave moment. I've been there. I've held the hands of people. I held the hand of my grandfather as he took his last breaths, but I've never sat beside a child who had passed away. Maybe you have, and maybe that reality alone causes pain. I just imagine the severity of the moment when Jesus walked in and that little girl lay, her body already beginning to cool. And Jesus, because of who he is, reached into death itself and spoke and brought the girl back to life. These disciples, the very people who sat in that upper room with Jesus, had seen the miraculous, and yet they struggled with doubt. They struggled with their relationship to the truth. So if you're dealing with any of that today, Jesus has seen it before. This was an incredible night. Jesus, at this moment, he'd been ministering for about three years. He was the most famous person in the city by far. And he walked in that night when they were sitting down to dinner, and he stooped at the feet of every person and washed their feet. I was reading about our new princess from America that we just sent over to England named Meghan Markle, and there's these reports about how she's fitting into royal protocol. And there's a rule for everything when you're around royalty. There's a rule about how you curtsy and what kind of words you use, and you have to wear certain things like pantyhose. What? I don't know. Um, And it just reminded me that like when a person of high rank is in the room, there is enough convention in our world to teach us that they are better. How we respond and how we react, and sometimes if we're not careful, we have that same view of God, that he is distant, that we have to sit up straight when he comes into the room. And yet Jesus, on this night, in that moment, the king of the universe, the famous man in town, the healer of people, the one who raises the dead back to life, stooped at the feet of these people and said, not only can you approach me, 
but I will approach you. That's the Jesus who's just getting ready to speak. I want to set the stage because the claim is so bold, so shocking, so transformative, and you have to decide. Because if you do, it changes everything. Before he speaks this passage in John 14, he had just told a hard truth to his friends. He said, I'm going to do something for you that's going to blow your mind. You're not going to understand it at first, but you're going to need it more than you know. Because you need more than a teacher. You need a savior. Because you have something in your life called sin that separates you from God, and someone's got to pay that price. Someone's got to pay the anger of God, and I'm going to do it for you. In fact, it's what I came to do before I met you, before I knew you, before I found you. I knew that's what I was going to do for you. They're going to take me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to nail me to a cross, and they're going to kill me. And I'm going to die for you. And his disciples were like, yeah. No, they weren't. They were like, no. That's a bad idea. Because what you just said is fine. But what we have right now is good enough. And Jesus said, no, it's not. I'm going away. The air in that room was thick. There was tension. The people didn't want Jesus to go because for three years he was all they had known. And here's what Jesus said in John, John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but believe also in me. Because in my Father's house there are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going and Thomas I love Thomas history would later call him doubting Thomas because he was always the guy who spoke up with a question and Thomas said to him Lord we don't know where you're going how can we know the way and Jesus answered in the boldest proclamation regarding truth the world will ever know. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and if you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on, you do know him, and you seen him. Let's pray. Jesus, I believe in this moment, we're not talking to the air, we're speaking to the very ones who just breathed those words of life. And now I would ask that you, by your very spirit, would bring them to life in our hearts today. Allow us to understand who you are. Allow us to understand the truth. Jesus, meet us here and where there are captives. Let your truth set us free. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said together, amen. See, I believe that what you believe about the truth will determine your decisions, and I believe that your decisions will determine your destiny. And if that's true, then the main questions are, do you believe in Jesus, and do you know Jesus? I think there's some things that we can learn from this text today, a million things. In fact, 
I give you a challenge. Go home. Read this text again. Don't just listen to me. Listen to the word of God. Read the chapters before. Read the chapters after. Make sure what I'm saying is true because it is so worthwhile. But the first thing I think we see in this text is this. Truth dispels fear. Truth dispels fear. I love the context. Sometimes we think of truth as being dry and boring. It's the thing that the professor in class is droning on and on about. What he's saying is true, but is it relevant? In this moment, Jesus says there is no separation because truth is powerful. Truth is poignant. And when truth shows up, there is something that flees. And the thing that has to run is fear. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and in me. Shadows are scary. Have you ever noticed? We bought a book a couple of weeks ago for my daughter called Hortense and the Shadow. It's a great book. It's got beautiful illustrations, and it's about a girl who has a complicated relationship with shadows. And in this story, shadows can always seem scarier than reality, and the same is true about our fear. The Bible teaches us that there is a true, real enemy in our world who seeks to steal, to kill, and destroy. His power is so outmatched by the living God that the one thing he uses as a constant yet effective weapon is not reality, but good. Here's the beauty. When it comes to darkness, there is one weapon that always works. Light. Darkness has no chance against the light because the minute light shows up, darkness backs away. What are the lie shadows in your life? There's one effective weapon, truth. Truth is the light. What shadows have you believed in your life? What shadows have you believed about God and his character, his heart and his truth? What shadows have you believed about yourself? And how has the enemy been allowed to bound you up in those shadows? Allow the light in. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus and be free. If truth is real, then questions are okay. I was talking to a great friend who's taking a break from church. It was kind of a heartbreaking moment, but we had an awesome conversation. We sat down with this person, and I said, kind of walk me through everything. And they essentially said, I've been trying so hard to believe what I've been told that I'm not even sure if I've had the chance to process it. That's the difference between religion and relationship. Religion is a set of rules and regulations, stipulations that we try to uphold. But the only problem is, is they can all stay shallow and they never go deep. If truth is real, then the way it seeps into your life is by asking the right questions. Your questions have to have a place. In fact, Thomas is the one that initiated this incredible response. For How did he bring this truth from Jesus' lips with a question? What if you're dealing with doubt today? God can handle it. What if you're dealing with questions about God's character? He can handle it. He's good for it. I had a friend by the name of Sam. He's almost a believer. When I met him, he was a militant atheist. And he would talk to me about neurobiology and psychology and raise all sorts of questions. And there were just days where I would say, Sam, I just don't know the answer. 
And he would say to me, then how can you believe if you have not eliminated every alternative? How can you believe in Jesus? And I said, because Sam, my questions were okay, but I brought them to the man himself. And in doing so, not only did I get answers, but I got intimacy. I met him. I met him. It's not just my story. It's a story that's been repeated time and time again by people who were angry with God, distant from God, unbelievers, somewhat believers. When you bring your questions to Jesus, you just might find Jesus. John 14, 4. And you know the way I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I said earlier this week a quote that I've heard. That genius is not one great answer. It's five incredible questions. If you're going to have truth in your life, be willing to ask your questions. In fact, the Bible is filled with stories about people who share shocking intimacy with God. Some of them asking the most audacious questions. Job asked questions about the very nature of life itself. David asked questions like, God, where are you? And when are you going to show up? Moses asked questions all of the time. God, is this really what you want? How is this going to work out? If those are the questions on your heart, never, 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 never be afraid to ask them to God. And as long as we can exist as a church, this will be a place where you are safe to ask your questions. What would you ask God today if he could? Your faith won't get real until you do. Some of you, the question you need to ask is this. God, why, if you're so good, did you allow this to happen? Ask him. Maybe the question you need to ask is, God, in the midst of this circumstance where were you maybe the question you need to ask is God are you even there C.S. Lewis was a renowned atheist and he began asking questions and he met Jesus and here's what he would later go on to write about atheism atheists express their rage against God although in their view he does not exist Lee Strobel is another writer. He was an atheist and a journalist. He set out on a mission to disprove the God that his wife had begun to trust. And he would later go on to say that even though he promised himself he was an objective journalist, there's a deep truth that he didn't want to believe. He said this, To be honest, I didn't want to believe that Christianity could radically transform someone's character and values it was much easier to raise doubts and manufacture outrageous objections than to consider the possibility that God could actually trigger a revolutionary turnaround in me. It's not that he didn't want to believe. It's that he didn't want to change. And that's the truth. Truth changes things. Truth changes things. What are we afraid of? There's a second thing that we see. This is gorgeous. And maybe we've heard the opposite, but we need to hear the truth today. We can discover the truth. 
The truth is knowable. The truth is knowable. The truth is knowable. I love to watch those TV shows about investigations. My grandmother was in town a couple of weeks ago, and every night she somehow found on the television murder she wrote. Angela Lansbury, this dignified old lady who was just making, I won't say old, I will say mature and beautiful and stately. Um, she would just be making tea when suddenly a nun would be murdered. Um, very clean, no blood. Um, and she would somehow stumble on the solution. And there was just great satisfaction um, in watching the case being cracked. But there's um, another phenomenon happening right now called peak TV. And um, it's uh, just a time in our culture and life, and it's a great time. And it's an artistic revival, really, around television broadcasting where storytellers and authors and writers are exploring the ambiguity of life. And um, so neat packaged stories are no longer popular. What we're filled with these days are unanswered questions. And if we're not careful, we are led to believe that truth is unknowable. And Jesus says, that's not true. Verse 4 said, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, but Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I believe that religion as its heart says work and work and work. And gradually you will get there. Work and work and work. Earn and earn and earn. And maybe you will understand one day. In fact, I know some religions that won't even give you the whole truth until you've gone way far into your religious practice. That's very convenient. Jesus says the alternative. He says, know me, and you know everything. It's just a matter of how deep we will go. If Jesus is the truth, he would have left evidence of himself everywhere, and yet I believe that's what we see everywhere. I think there's two knowable sources of truth. The first is his creation. We have this false dichotomy in our culture that says you can either be a person of science or a person of belief, but you cannot be both. And yet history tells us time and again that is not true. I could do a whole other lecture and talk on this idea. I, better yet, could bring brilliant minds that are in the room right now to talk on this subject. But I just want to touch on a few if I could. Let's look to creation. Author Stephen Meyer, a Ph.D., says this. If it's true there's a beginning to the universe, as modern cosmologists now agree, then this implies a cause that transcends the universe. If the laws of physics are fine-tuned to permit life, as contemporary physicists are discovering, then perhaps there's a designer who fine-tuned them. If there's information in a cell, as molecular biology shows, then this suggests intelligent design. To get life going in the first place would have required biological information. The implications point beyond the material realm to a prior intelligent cause. See, I believe the false dichotomy says this. Religion gave us the dark ages. Science gave us the space age. So I was doing some research from some of the first individuals, brilliant scientists, who were involved in the very first Apollo missions, when we transcended our species' our species best hopes and we left the Earth's atmosphere launching into space, a pivotal moment in human history. I was reading about a man by the name of William Anders. He was educated at Harvard, at the Naval Academy, the Air Force Institute of Technology. He was an electrical engineer, a nuclear engineer, and a NASA scientist. And he was one of three 
of the first humans who ever left planet Earth to orbit the moon. He is the man, the physical embodiment of the origin of the space age. And his destiny literally depended on his view of the truth. Every algorithm was important. Every measurement critical. Every moment mattered. Can you imagine the ingenuity and scientific genius that went into the mission of Apollo 8? These were not casual scientists. Their very lives depended on what they had learned. For centuries, our culture um, has worshipped the moon, invented stories about the moon, created superstitions about the moon. And William Anders and his crew were about to discover the truth. And as the three men orbited the moon, a massive television audience watched. It will be the largest audience in the entire uh, year for television viewing. And as the men orbited the moon, William Anders, to a massive television audience, said this. We are now approaching a lunar sunrise. And for all of the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message we would like to send you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. We see in this moment that perhaps religion gave us the dark ages. Perhaps science gave us the space age. But Jesus, he gives us the truth. There's another source of truth, and that's the Word of God, the Bible. It's what we're reading from today. It makes claims of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, 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 for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Some of you asking today, if you're just going to preach from the Bible, I'm not sure if I can believe it, because how can we know the Bible is Stop asking that question. As a person who studied the Bible for some 20 years now, I love asking that question more intensely with more depth as we ask. Because I've come to find what I believe you will find under close scrutiny. The Bible is an unparalleled, unparalleled as an ancient text and as an historical document. Just to look at some quick comparisons, again, I could do another two-hour lecture. Some of you are like, I feel like you already have. I haven't. <laughs> We're going to wrap it up one day. Uh, the Quran, a great book. We respect those who believe it. But the Quran was written by one man, and it contradicts itself 120 times. The Book of Mormon, written by one man, claims to be an extension of the Bible, and yet it contradicts the Bible in every major way. The Bible, it's not a book, it's a library. It's a library of 66 books that were written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. These authors were from a diverse background. It's almost like God wanted to touch every corner of society. It was written by kings and generals, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds. It was written on three different continents, in three different languages, and yet... Unlike any other document in all of historical antiquity, it tells one harmonious story about a God who never, ever, ever, 
who never, ever, ever stopped pursuing his people. A God who watched our failure, watched our tribulation, watched the brokenness that we invited into the world and said, I will never leave you. I will never give up on you. It tells the story about how a God fulfilled all of his promises to his creation by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross, perish for our sins, rise from the dead, and invite us in to hope. And that's where we see our third principle. Truth gets personal. Truth gets personal. John 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. What a vulnerable moment. Hey, uh, Jesus, I don't want to interrupt. Like, you're on a roll here. It's super good, but um, you just said something. I don't know what to do with it yet. In that question, it opened up vulnerability, and Jesus filled the gap. I love Jesus' answer. Jesus said to him, the most personal statement, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him. You do know God. And you have seen him. And the central claim of Jesus is this. Truth is not a set of facts that you can memorize. Truth is a person who can be known. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O God, that I may walk in your truth. John 1, 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 8, 31 and 32. Get excited about this one. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Where in your life are you experiencing bondage? That's where you need truth. Fear is a liar, but truth shines the light. Sin is a chain, but truth is the chain breaker. There's a lie. It says you cannot overcome what you are facing. Would you like a little truth? Shine on that darkness. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Take that darkness. Finally, today we see this. The truth of Jesus leads to a destiny with God. What? Religion makes you good. Jesus gives you God. The truth of Jesus. See, we said today that what you believe about truth will affect your decisions, and your decisions will affect your destiny. But there's really only one question with which you must decide. Not just do you believe Jesus, but do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I'm going to ask for our musicians to come back. And in just a moment, we're going to have a time of reflection. And I just want to do something simple. I want to read our scripture again. I believe there's truth and power in the word of God. And I want you to put yourself in this scene, in this scenario, as I read it to you out loud. 
Maybe your hearts are troubled today. Jesus has a message for you. Maybe you're feeling conflicted today. Jesus knows how you feel. The Bible says he was tempted in every way. And this is what he says. He said it 2,000 years ago, and it rings true today as the Spirit brings it to life. Let not your hearts be troubled in God and believe also in me. Because in my Father's house, there's many rooms. It was so interesting. This week we got to how relationship changes once you've been in someone's home. It's just different. You go as friends and you leave as family. Have you ever stayed over at a friend's house? That's going to test the relationship. <laughs> You're going to see how life really goes in that moment. And can you imagine that the king of the universe who gave us a perfect planet to inhabit, he gave us freedom that we used to bring sin. Sin is disease. Disease brings decay. We have this rotting world and the mess that we have contributed to. And he says, okay, I've got a second plan. In fact, it was always the plan. Because I don't want you just to be in a good place. I want you to be in my place. I want you to not just live in a good house. I want you to live in my house. <laughs> in my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, no, I don't. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.